Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually, consciously living today. Here's your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Good morning and welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living today. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and co-host of the show. And today our topic is what the body can teach us. I'm delighted to be joined today by Susan Bauer, the author of the book, The Embodied Teen, A Somatic Curriculum of Teaching Mind-Body Awareness, Kinesthetic Intelligence, and Social and Emotional Skills. Susan Bauer is a teacher, dancer, author, Fulbright scholar, and somatic educator and practitioner living in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's the founder of Embodiment in in Education and offers workshops and teacher trainings internationally. You can find out more about Susan and her work at SusanBauer.com, and Bauer is spelled B-A-U-E-R.com. Welcome, Susan Bauer. I'm delighted you could join me today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you so much, Laurel. I'm so inspired to be here. I can't wait to speak with you. So before we uh, dive into our conversation about what the body can teach us, let's begin with a moment of diving within. Let's take this moment uh, to fully arrive and be present. Oh. So let's begin right where we are, whatever we're, do, whatever we're doing, and just feel our body in space. Feel your feet, whatever they're touching. Feel your body, whatever ways it is supported. Perhaps you're walking or sitting, you might be driving. And just as much as you can, turn your attention within and just feel your body in space. Feel the surfaces that support you. And then turn your attention to your breath. This wonderful tool that is always with us. And just notice as you take a fully conscious inhale and exhale. Notice the cool air entering the nostrils on the inhale and the warm air flowing out. Just noticing the natural rhythm of breathing, not trying to change it. Just noticing. And feeling with each in-breath, 
we can dive further within. And with each out-breath, we can let go and relax. And then diving within, feeling close to the essence of our being, this essence that's the source and substance of all that is. It's within us, between us and all around us. And just by being still for a moment and noticing, we can rest in this essence of our being. Rest within our bodies. And as we rest there, we may notice thoughts or feelings as they arise. And just notice them. Just notice them as you might notice a cloud in a clear blue sky. Realize we can watch that. Watch thoughts and feelings as they arise. And watch them as they pass away. Resting in this essence of our being. And as we draw this moment of meditation, this yoga moment to a close, let's remember this peace, this ability to turn within is always with us. We can use it and return to it many times during the day. So once again, Susan Bauer, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I have been enjoying reading your book, The Embodied Teen, and, and really reflecting on the need for all of us to be able to access the wisdom of our bodies. So let's start just with some basics, some definitions. I think, you know, when you talk about being embodied, perhaps for people, they would say, oh, of course, you know, of course I'm embodied. I mean, where else would I be? <laughs> but, but what does it really mean to be embodied, to have embodied self-awareness? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. And I, I first, I want to really thank you for that, that beautiful um, meditation and, in a sense, embodiment awareness that you just led us through. I feel like that's really uh, centering and part of the whole point of embodiment practice is really what you were speaking about, connecting us to our essence. So, yes, to get to some definitions, you know, in a sense, awareness is really where we put our attention. And self-awareness is getting to know ourselves and our inner qualities. So like we just did, you know, maybe in meditation, we learn to bring our inner awareness to our thoughts, to noticing our emotions. Maybe if we're in psychotherapy, we go deeper into our emotions. So these are all ways of really getting to know this inner life. So an embodied self-awareness is going to also include an awareness of the interrelationship of all of that, including our body, our body, mind, and emotions. But the interesting thing about tuning into our bodies is often I find in our culture, we're more geared toward tuning into the outer world. There's so much kind of information overload and stimulus to mm -hmm. attend to that we lose track of the inner sensations. So those inner sensations are things like our proprioceptors, which is our ability to feel our body in space. So when you had us 
breathe and feel our sense of our feet and our body sitting or standing, as you were mentioning. That's getting aware of our inner perception of where we are in relation to gravity. Mm -hmm. We also have our interoceptors, which is our perception of our internal organs and our sense of our inner body, whether I can breathe or whether my breathing feels tense or whether I'm hungry or whether I need to move my body inside. So that's all um, our interoception. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important about the difference between, yes, what's the difference between self-awareness and embodied self-awareness? Because we're all embodied, right? We're living in a body. but Embodiment is how we're living, how I experience being alive. So one of my main teachers, um, body, uh, Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen, who's the founder of Body Mind Centering, really emphasizes that embodiment is a cellular awareness practice. It's not a thinking process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It really means allowing the cells to become alive and to have more awareness in our bodies, as well as conscious awareness of the interrelationship of our body-mind. And what that does is it starts to give you more choice in sort of how to live and how to be in your body. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And uh, one of the reasons I was so interested in your book is I feel like this is, you know, one of the main uh, practices of, of yoga. Yoga is one way of accessing, you know, this, that to me, you know, it's not really practicing yoga if we're not, you know, if our, our uh, attention and awareness is not kind of in the present moment and within ourselves. Um, and we realize as we go, we can build those skills, you know, right? We can get better at it, you know, as we go. So um, you uh, chose to focus this book on, uh, on uh, teens, uh, which I think was really, you know, was really important. And as you and I had a chance to talk about briefly yesterday when we connected, you know, briefly before this conversation, you know, we talked about how important this is really for everyone and how it, you know, of course, it's particularly important to start early. I think it can be really, really helpful. But I did want to make the point for our listeners that really, you know, what we're talking about is, is something that's important for, you know, for everyone and not just not just teens. Yes. And I love that you bring that up because one of my main things I talk about is that in my perception, this whole field of somatics actually evolved out of a need for adults to have more connection to themselves and actually more tools to take care of our own body-mind health. So, um, you know, these practices grew out of many founders, and different we could name them, but, you know, different teachers who found that they had issues in their own bodies that they were working to heal that they didn't find was getting maybe sufficiently addressed with the Western medical model. So they mm-hmm. started to investigate in their own bodies and come up with um, these kind of new practices, in a sense, creating an education of the body-mind to heal this body-mind split that many of us as adults really grew up with in our own educational system. Yes, absolutely. So, um, in your book, you share the story of your journey to become more embodied and how you came to teach this to others. So through your background as a dancer, you, you write, you initially viewed your body as an object or tool and molded it to get your body to do what you wanted it to do. So um, how did this view of your own body change and what benefits did you notice from learning to be in your body in a different way? Yeah, I do write about that. I think the first thing I want to clarify, I think that dancing did the way I was trained. You know, I grew up in New Jersey. I trained in New York City as well. So I had good 
dance training. And I think it gave me certain things, you know, discipline, which we need as a young person, as well as creativity and, you know, a social outlet. But there's also a lot of unhealthy, maybe objectification of our bodies. So, you know, that I saw around me. So you learn to kind of override things to get your rehearsals done and you end up injuring yourself or you diet to match this cultural perception of what a dancer should look like. So when I started taking uh, experiential anatomy in college, I found it really had a much more personal approach. And maybe I could say sort of three kind of ways it benefited me. Um, one is probably just practical. I got better as a dancer. You know, I think when you know the real um, actual anatomy of your body, you can move more efficiently. So instead of just muscling to get your leg up, for instance, you can understand, you know, the shape of the femur joint and how it fits in the acetabulum of the pelvis and kind of rotate and you get a natural extension without having to push and pull uh, okay. your body around. And the other thing is, it's really more versatile. Instead of just training in kind of one technique, I found that this kind of approach gave me a deeper kinesthetic sense that applied to all sorts of movement practices. So, you know, for instance, if you take a tennis player and you put them on the soccer field, uh, they might not be very good because they've trained at this one particular, you know, um, neurological pathways in their body, but they right. have almost to the exclusion of other things. So this kind of approach is not geared toward a specific movement uh, vocabulary. It's more geared toward developing kind of a baseline of kinesthetic intelligence in our bodies that then can be applied to everything. So then I just felt more empowered and as a mover. Um, and maybe the last thing is just that it was really much more personal and brought about a lot of self-understanding. You know, for instance, one of the things we did uh, which I think everyone should do at some point in their lives, and we don't really have an opportunity, is we wrote what was called our body story in this mm. class that I did um, with Karen McCose at Middlebury College. And that was to really reflect on, you know, what's influenced my body and the way I move, the way I perceive myself, you know, maybe my birth experience, maybe if I grew up in the city or in the country, what kind of movement practice I was encouraged or discouraged from doing as a young person. So it really has us delve into this sort of a relationship of our culture and how that impacts our body as well. So all of those things was such a rich territory of my inner world that just wasn't getting explored in my dance experience. And you, and you just <clears throat> spoke about, a, I think, a really interesting uh, shift of, you know, um, working with our bodies as tools and expecting them only, you know, to to attain something, which is also something that I see often in yoga, you know, where, you know, someone sees a certain pose, you know, maybe on the cover of a yoga magazine, and they just really, really want to do that pose. And there's a lot of pushing, you know, in order to be able to get there, which often, you know, then results in injury, you know, versus just honoring the integrity of the body in the moment and understanding that today, for example, the body feels different than it did yesterday, even, you know, you may not be able to do everything today that you did yesterday, or it may be easier than it was yesterday. That's right. And I think the somatic approach is really gearing toward what you're speaking about of getting that inner awareness of your body in the moment. So for instance, even in a lot of dance studios now, or, you know, college dance programs, they're starting to use mirror uh, uh, curtains across the mirrors yes. with recognition that we don't only want to, I mean, sometimes mirrors are helpful, 
but we don't only want to move in relation to some outer image of our body. And that, like you said, the shape we're supposed to get in. That's we right. Want, we want to live the movement, not yeah. just imitate the movement. Yeah. Often what I do when I'm teaching a class is I'll actually position myself in the room so people's backs are to the mirror so I can't cover the mirror I don't have that you know that uh, ability but at least get people to face away from it you know for most of the class is really helpful so (laughs) as you point out uh, middle school high school and even college curricula primarily focus on the developing the intellect and really kind of leave the body out Um, there as you know, you write about in the book, there are really many proven benefits of somatic education as well. So you write, learning about our bodies as well as cultivating the capacity to be fully present, awake, attentive, and responsive to both our inner and outer worlds can positively influence all aspects of our life. So I wanted to pause in our conversation, you know, I, I really do want to talk more about exactly what we're talking about. And we'll give some examples in the, you know, in the second part of the show. But what do you see as some of the reasons that somatic education is really important for teens? Great. I'm so glad you asked that because our teens right now need my feeling they need so much support. It's, you know, very challenging, first of all, to go through those changes in your body, um, feeling awkward and uncomfortable. And I feel like they really need some kind of avenue that's just not outside curriculum, but actually focused on themselves to develop a more healthy relationship with themselves and their own bodies. I would love to read you this quote by one student that gives an example of this. Sure. Um, She said, this is from their journals. As they're doing the class, they do keep a body journal during the class. And this was toward the end of what she wrote. I started out feeling very self-conscious in this class. I think I was afraid of my body, but being aware of what's in my body and how I move makes me more, more at ease. Having knowledge about my body allows me to be a bit more confident. So I think they really, you know, students really crave really knowing more about themselves and having an avenue to feel more comfortable. And in it. And in a non-judgmental, you know, environment, which you're very careful, to, you know, to set up that, you know, there is a lot of comparing that, that, well, we all do, but that teens especially do, you know, as they're growing into new bodies. And I think that's a really key part of it. Yes, it's very important for two reasons. One is because the skills you develop in adolescence are often the ones you take into your adult life. And so this is a really important time to begin to develop some healthy habits and inner awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, without that, you're making a lot of poor choices that end up affecting your health as an adult as well. So it's a really key time. The other reason is that it's a very vulnerable time, as you brought up. And my experience is a lot of teens really feel that their voice doesn't matter. There's so much that's decided for them. So this approach is really set up to also include their own subjective experience and have them feel empowered to relate with the material themselves, not just to be given material. You know, I talked to my niece about this when I was writing the book about, you know, would you be interested in having a class like this that was about your body and mind and emotions and how this all relates and learning about your body? And her eyes lit up and she said, oh, yeah. And then she froze. And this real worried look came over her face. And she said, well, actually, uh, that would depend who was teaching it. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah. Recognize if there wasn't, you know, a compassionate, like you were saying, container and safe place for this work, yeah. it wasn't really going to have the impact that she would want. It could actually right. have the opposite impact. Um, so in your, in your book, The Embodied Teen, you, you mentioned several benefits uh, of, of this somatic education, this, you know, ability for people to, tur- to tune into themselves, you know, within their internal environment as much as their external environment. So how do you think the increased sense of being in our bodies helps to build resiliency. This is one thing that I'm very interested in as a physician, although now retired, this idea of resiliency. How can we bounce back? And how does this help? Yeah, and in education, of course, now there's a lot of focus on things like resiliency and self-adaptation and self-regulation, all these terms. Um, And many of them are related to what you're saying. How do we handle what's going on in our lives? You know, I think one of the things is that as you become um, more able to respond from a sense of your full capacity, you get more confidence in, in being able to respond and therefore more resilient. And these kind of practices build that kind of self-awareness from which you can have that potential. And so if you go deeper into what that really means, you know, neuroscience tells us we can only control what we can perceive, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we can't perceive within our body to have that level of self-awareness, then we can't have any self-regulation, which kind of leads to that ability to be resilient. Are you following that connection yeah. there? Yeah, no, so, definitely. You know, for instance, we know this in our own lives, but also for teens, as I brought up before, you know, you might exercise to the point of injury. You might find that you're getting, you know, low blood sugar and you're getting annoyed with people rather than realizing, oh, I should have a snack. (laughs) Or, you know, for teens, they're often forced to be sitting for a long time and then they're getting all anxious. Well, if you could recognize, oh, actually, I just need a a break. I need to get up and walk a little and then come back to my studies. It It would change the way you could relate on a daily basis so that you're sense of sort of, I guess the term I'm thinking of is like homeostasis in your body doesn't get so far out of whack. Then you're hit with another, you know, with a harder life event that you're already below your capacity um, to be able to handle things. Yeah, you're already stressed in these ways by just not taking basic care. And, you know, how easy it is to just overlook those until those internal signals until, you know, they become overwhelming. So I know there's a term now hangry, you know, where people are hungry and because they're hungry, they get angry. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, gosh, if they just picked it up a little earlier, you know, and had something to eat, then they could spare the rest of us quite a bit of uh, suffering, I think. Right. So to have some space to develop that kind of skill and that kind of proprioceptive, interoceptive awareness that you can tune in at that level. So another thing that really interested me was um, you were talking about compassion. So how do you think these somatic practices help to make us more compassionate towards ourselves and towards others? Yeah, I think that compassion is so important in our world today. And that I like that you ask for ourselves and others, because it really you have to have that level of compassion for yourself that really starts to impact how you treat others. I think one of the ways is it brings much more of an these practices bring a more intimate connection with yourself and your own body. 
And again, I'd like to read a student quote about this that I think, you know, I think the students sure. louder because they had this these experiences for themselves. Um, we do one exercise uh, activity together where just to experience the heart and the lungs and the relationship of those organs in your thoracic cavity, um, you one person puts a fist out and the other one puts their two hands around their closed fist. So it feels like the lungs hugging the heart. And here's what she wrote about this. A lasting thought for me was the image of one's hands cupped around another's closed fist. It reflects the very image of the heart encased by the lungs. Just as the lungs shield the heart, so does the sternum and the ribs protect the lungs. Thinking about this just made me feel safe in my own body. Wow, that's, that's so great, so perceptive. Yeah, and then the way that starts to reflect out to our common humanity and compassion toward others, we do another activity um, that I think maybe we'll speak about a little bit later, but about drawing the skeleton. And one of the, uh, this is the journal from the student after she did this drawing. The fact that I have a complete skeleton inside me amazes me, as I think that everyone has the same structure as me, that we all have something in common. So, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama speaks about this quite often of, you know, I'm just a human being, I'm just a humble monk. And it brings that awareness that on some level, we all are just have a skeleton and we're human beings and we're the, we're, we have this common relationship. So at the same time that other activities in the curriculum really help students actually recognize difference and respect diversity and make space for individual identity. This kind of approach also brings in the this interrelationship that just helps you remember that we're all one human family. So I think both are really important in building compassion. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's so great! Such a really beautiful example, you know, of of getting to see the oneness, the oneness behind the diversity, and you know, obviously. Uh, teens are in all sorts of shapes, their bodies are in all sorts of shapes, but to see the commonalities, um, I think would be particularly powerful, you know, for them. And what's really powerful is they discovered that on their own. It's not that I'm teaching that it's through these activities. This is what they're discovering and learning for themselves. And with that, we've come to the break. You're listening to the yoga hour with our guest, Susan Bauer author of the book we're discussing today, The Embodied Teen. Susan offers workshops and teacher trainings internationally, which you can find out more about at susanbauer.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and co-host of the show. When we come back from the break, we'll explore more about what the body can teach us. We'll be right back. Unity Online Radio is bringing the message of unity to thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. If you enjoy our programming, we invite you to support it by visiting unityonlineradio.org and clicking on Donate Now. Help us continue to provide inspiring content to everyone. Thank you for your support.
Here's a Unity Wisdom Moment with Ianla Van Zandt, taken from a Celebrate Your Life event in Phoenix, Arizona. The universe is not going to wait for you. And if you keep talking yourself out of what you're told to do because of your negative self-talk or the crazy you inherited, somebody else is going to pick up on the idea. How many times have you been told to do something and you start figuring out the how? But the philosopher Nietzsche told us if you've got a strong enough what, the how will be provided. The way you do the things that the universe is calling you to do is don't ask how. When you get the instruction, just start moving. Everything else will show up for you. To find a Celebrate Your Life event near you, visit CelebrateYourLife.com. Did you know you can reach Unity's 24-7 prayer ministry online? You don't even have to give your name to know the prayers have begun for you or those you love. Someone has been praying around the clock at Silent Unity since 1890, and every request is taken into prayer for 30 days. Why not let us pray with you, too? To submit your prayer request to Silent Unity online, go to unity.org and click on prayer, or call 816-969-2000. Would you like to show your support for Unity Online Radio? You can donate easily on your phone by texting the word VOICE to 50555 and donate $10 to support Unity Online Radio. It's easy to do, and your offering will help us keep inspirational and positive programming on the air. Remember, just text the word VOICE to 50555 and support your favorite shows on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Discover how to connect with our loved ones on the other side with Suzanne Giesman and Messages of Hope. Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. Central as Suzanne shares evidence that love never dies. In evidential medium, spiritual teacher, and author, Suzanne brings hope and healing through her gift of communication with those who have passed. Suzanne brings messages of hope and love that go straight to the heart. Tune in this Thursday right here on Unity Online Radio. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, living the eternal way with your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome back to The Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of the show. I'm here today with author and somatic educator and practitioner, Susan Bauer. Susan, I love the quote that you use on the dedication page of your book. And the quote is, one generation plants the trees, another gets the shade. That's so beautiful. I'm going to read it again. One generation plants the trees, another gets the shade. So why did you choose this particular quote? Yes, I'm so glad you brought that quote up. I love that quote as well. You know, I think it's because I see what's happening in education now, and I hold this vision of somatic education actually really being a part of what students have as part of their education And I also think it's a long-term vision, and I'm I'm not quite sure how we're going to get there yet. Um, So I think this was my way of planting the seed, and hopefully in in my lifetime, this will blossom into being more common in our culture, in a sense, in the way yoga has become much more mainstream. Um, But, you know, it might be that the next generations get the shade from these trees I'm planting. Mm, Very nice. Uh, You know, one of the things I think that's shifting in education now is this, either calling it soft skills, 
right? But this awareness that we actually need more focus on our inner development. And so things like mindfulness, social emotional learning, you know, are becoming more present in our schools, actually not just in the US, but I think internationally. And somatic education really teaches all of these same baseline skills as well as develops this more embodied presence. Mm -hmm. So I think the time is really ripe for this to blossom. It's just that people don't actually, many people don't know, particularly in education, what somatic movement education is. So they can't see the, how intimately it relates with what's already happening and could complement what's already happening. Right. And just as a as a bit of an explanation for those who aren't familiar with the term. So this term social emotional learning has to do with the things that you mentioned before, like the self-management that we we're talking about, you know, knowing to eat when you're hungry instead of getting angry and <laughs> taking it out on your on your you know fellow, um, you know, your colleagues at work or your family, you know, at home, that sort of thing. Right. Yes, it has to do with, they have actually different categories, but it has to do with self-awareness and self-regulation and decision-making. And it's basically kind of your interpersonal skills and intrapersonal skills. So mm -hmm. managing your inner life and your relationships with others. So it's a, it's a social-emotional in the sense of you're learning how to relate with self and in your community. Mm-hmm. So turning back to the to your book itself and the many um, exercises that you have, because you do really outline this whole curriculum, you know, I should say. Um, the, the, <laughs> what was that? There's 50 activities in there, yes. Wow, wow. So um, the somatic curriculum you provide includes body experiences. You've mentioned one. We'll get to a couple of others as examples for people. Also includes journaling, which you've also mentioned, and drawing. And I was very interested to read about the misconceptions that many teens and adults have about their own anatomy and how those misconceptions can affect the way that they hold tension in their bodies. For example, <clears throat> you say that most teens will draw a spine that has a straight, that is very straight, like a pole, rather than the natural curves that the spine actually does have. So what effect does this misunderstanding as shown in the drawings, not that drawing's wrong, but it, it reflects our inner understanding of like, for example, what our skeleton is like. They're drawing them with these very straight spines. What effect does that have on posture? Yes, it's a great activity. And I'm just so shocked over the years, whatever 30 years I've been doing this, both adults and teens will draw this straight line for their spine. So, you know, in our culture, we often speak about straighten up or sit with a straight spine. So the language actually impacts our perception of our body. So as they start to learn about the curves of the spine, we also learn about the actual anatomy of the spine, which is that if you, of course, I don't have a vertebrae here to show you, but the weight-bearing part is called the body of the vertebrae. And the part, you know, if you touch your back, those little pointy things you feel, those are actually the spinous processes coming out at the very back of the body of the vertebrae. So we get this idea that our spine is in our back, but actually the bodies of the vertebrae come in about two-thirds of the way into the core of your body. So as you get both a perception of your, your spine being more in the core of your body and it having these natural curves, it, it brings about a, a relaxation in the musculature because the actual support of your body can come forth rather than feeling that you have to put your body in a straight position by using all of your muscular energy. 
-hmm. You know, I had one student, um, you know, the book uses different names that are changed, of course, for their privacy. But um, in the book, I think I call her Carla. I was very sad to see because she had a very strong, and not all ballet training is this way, but the particular ballet training she had, she had a very strong training to keep the pole in line, is what the teacher would tell her. So she tucked her chin, if you can try this yourself, you see how much it hurts, sort of down and in to keep a flat, you know, cervical vertebrae there. And she would have so much tension in her neck that she'd come into school and she couldn't even turn her head. So in order to talk to you or turn to the side, she'd have to turn her whole body. Mm. And um, it was very painful. And as she did these drawings and learned about the anatomy of her spine, over time, she was able to have a much more natural curve in that place in her body. And all of these tensions, you know, were finally relieved. Right. Now, that's such a great example. And I would also echo another example of a yoga therapy client I saw within the last few months who was having... Uh, <clears throat> was having um, back pain, low back pain. Um, and uh, when when I looked at her spine and how she was standing, it was, there were no, I mean, she was, it was artificially kind of straightened, you know, from extra, you know, muscle tension, for example, between the shoulder blades, et cetera. And so part of the work was explaining to her, you know, hey, it's not supposed to be, your spine's not supposed to be really straight like that. And she's like, it's not. <laughs> I was like, no, uh -huh. it's not. It's actually the the curves of the spine actually help. They're like in dynamic balance. You know, when the curves are balanced, the body can, you know, can be in balance. So uh, I just thought that was such an interesting, um, interesting thing that you picked up from having students draw their, draw their idea of what their skeleton looked like. Yeah, and I love that you use the term dynamic, Laurel, because that's one of the things we teach. So first of all, at one point in one activity, they actually trace the curves of the spine on a partner, you know, using a flat hand, you can just feel that the spine is curved. Right. Then another thing we do is talk about, we have an idea of posture as being a position, you know, what's my posture, but actually posture is meant to be just a dynamic interrelationship between these three body weights of your skull, your torso and your pelvis. So it's mm -hmm. not actually a held position. It's right. a, it's an event. <laughs> a, process. a process right right yeah, yeah. So that's the other way that this um drawing really helps students is they see oh i have this static image but my body is an event it's not a a static thing yeah i love that my body is an event that's great <laughs> so another common belief among teens that you describe in the book is that the abdominal area should move inward when they inhale and i would also echo this is something that i definitely uh, often see in adults um and you know particularly when we're working on you know some pranayama some breathing exercise and you know again there's this feeling like the abdomen should come in so what effect have you seen, you know, and people who believe this? Yes. And again, what you bring up is true is it's a cultural perception and there's many different ways it gets perpetuated. You know, we have the image of the flat abdomen, what is it called? The um, six pack. Yeah. Thank you. The six pack calves. Right. Um, and so our culture teaches that. And, you know, some of the students have even said they practice to get it right, to try to breathe that way because they think it's the correct way. So, yeah, so a couple things. If you put one hand on your belly, even if you want to try this now, if you're listening, if you're not driving, and one hand on your chest, and you take a deep breath, 
and just notice what happens under your hands. Often for people, what happens is their chest comes up and out. So they're taking a big, deep breath in their upper torso. What happens with this is that your diaphragm, which if you take your hand and make a curved um, little curve right at the bottom of your chest where your ribs end, that's where your diaphragm is, separating your thoracic cavity and your abdominal cavity. When you're breathing in, your diaphragm actually pulls down and presses down and flattens. So as that happens, of course, there's going to be more volume in your abdominal cavity. So your organs have to go somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> if your um, diaphragm can relax down, the first thing that's going to happen is your belly's going to come forward. And then your chest is going to expand. Right. right. It's almost like people are doing the opposite. And what that does is it doesn't let the diaphragm fully descend. And it means you're taking what's called, you know, chest breathing or shallow breathing. Mm -hmm. And as you learn about the actual anatomy of your body, you can begin to have deeper breaths, which has an impact on your nervous system and your blood flow. Because, of course, why are we breathing? We're getting oxygen, fresh oxygen to right. all of our blood cells. So it actually brings more vitality to your whole body to begin this process of really learning not just the mental idea of, oh, take a deep breath, but actually physically and physiologically, how do I do that in my body? What mm -hmm. actually needs to happen? Mm -hmm. Yes, the, the other thing I really appreciate about some of what you write about in the book is um, people's awareness and understanding of how their emotions are so present in their body. And talking about the breathing, I was thinking about uh, patients of mine who've been anxious, who, who even have come into the office for me as a physician, um, and are breathing very rapidly, but very shallowly and very high in the chest. Yeah. And that, you know, uh, that pairing, you know, of that rapid high breathing you can actually even make yourself more anxious if you just really, really, you know, really breathe like that, you know, so there's a real association, you know, between the between an emotion, and this particular, you know, manifestation of, of how people are breathing. And as you write about, you know, there's all kinds of cues like that in the body. And so by learning about the body, we really learn about how we embody our emotions. Yes, I'd love that you bring that up, Laurel, because one of the very first things we do when we study breathing, so the important part of this approach that I feel I've developed is that it really starts with people's personal connection and then builds that anatomy and physiology to support an, a deeper understanding. So the first exercise we actually do with breathing is students will lie down and in this uh, what's called constructive rest position with your feet on the floor, your knees up toward the ceiling and just place their hands like we did, right on your belly and your chest and see what breathing feels like. And then also just notice what does it mean to breathe normally and what does that feel like to you? And then after this, they do journal writings. And the two prompts that I give them for this three minute journal for each one is I can breathe when and I can't breathe when, which gets at just what you're talking about. How do my emotions relate with my body? So I'd like to just read one quote from a student about that. Sure. This is from her journal, so or his, I can't remember at this point. Um, I can't breathe when I'm nervous. 
I can't breathe when I'm crying. I can't breathe when I'm overthinking things. I can't breathe when I watch something scary. I can't breathe when I try too hard. And then the other one, I can breathe when I feel comfortable. I can breathe when I'm outside and under the sun. I can breathe when I dance. I can breathe when I'm moving. I can breathe when I'm confident. I can breathe when I'm with my friends. What a lovely exercise to really get people to understand that, to see where it is that they can't breathe, they feel that they can't breathe, and where they can breathe. So simple and so powerful. And then the other beautiful part of that is then that as a community, these teens, or I've just actually finished doing, you know, the same activity with my adults in this embodiment education training, but to have the teens then get to talk about that together. Yeah, what are the things that impact how we feel and how I experience in my body and, and really get some community building around sharing those experiences. Again, back to your point about building compassion for self, you know, and others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So another exercise I particularly liked was the one where you have students interact with their technology, <clears throat> which is on 244 to page 244 to 246. So could you describe this exercise for our listeners so they can get a mental image of what, you know, what you're asking people to do? Yes. You know, of course, I developed this activity because, as we all know, not just teens, but pretty much everyone you see is bending down, looking at their screen, whether it's their you know, iPad or their iPhone or whatever. So what we do is you can do it sitting or standing, and I have them bring their device. Of course, if you're in a you know, community where they don't have them, you can use a book too. It's the same thing, but I have them bring their cell phones and just text, start, you know, using them. And then I ask them to freeze and stay in that position in your body. And then I come around and I take the phones, which I've told them I'm going to do, by the way. And then I have them close their eyes. And we've already done this activity previously of aligning these, what we talked about, the three body weights of the head, torso, and pelvis. So then I have them, as much as they can, keep their hand in whatever position it's in that was holding their phone and align their three body weights. So not on a pole, of course, but, you know, in a dynamic relationship. And then I have them open their eyes. You can try this if you're listening. And then see what would I have to do if I keep this alignment to actually use my phone. So what you have to do, of course, is to raise your arms so that you have this more in in your line of vision, right? Rather than crunching forward to bend forward. Mm. And then to notice how that feels in your body. Then this is the really key part of the activity. Then I ask them to experiment with different ways of moving their phone and noticing how that impacts their body to be able to continue to use it. So they'll bring it up very high or they'll bring it down very low and pay attention to that shift of their relationship in their body. And uh, then they begin to notice, oh, when I'm forward with my phone, not only is my posture forward, but I feel kind of constricted in my rib cage and my lungs and heart, which we've learned are in there, are all crunched up and my organs and Uh, My neck kind of hurts. And so then I'll say, you find the position that feels best as you experiment. So again, I'm not telling them to do something a certain way. I'm letting them experience it, and then they get to choose. 
Well, with that one exercise, I think we could uh, eliminate a tremendous amount of neck, shoulder, and back pain (laughs) (laughs) that starts in in the 20s and 30s and 40s, you know, for people. And I I was thinking also of repeating that same exercise uh, for people sitting at their workstations, you know, sitting at their computer uh, and just freezing and feeling what that feels like. To me, so often what people are doing is they're sinking their chest and their shoulders are rolling forward and often their head is very forward as well, which as you know, puts, you know, a lot of strain on, you know, on their neck. So just feeling that and then feeling what it would take, you know, to realign, um, you know, the, the head and torso and pelvis, as you said, those, you know, three, you know, those three centers, what would it take? Should the chair be higher or lower? Or um, maybe your desk has an option where you can stand you know, and do some work, which I know is increasingly, you know, coming into offices where they have these platform desks that can raise or lower. Um, anyway, I just, I just thought it was wonderful to get people to tune in and then to really notice, because that's oftentimes what happens is we're so drawn to whatever's on the phone or yeah. on the computer that we totally lose track of our insights, our inner introception, as you mentioned. And so therefore we are holding ourselves in these, you know, in these ways that are, You know, it's interesting that one of your students said their chest felt so constricted because I I absolutely think that's what happens for most of us, you know, when we're, you know, in the posture that we are when we're holding our phone. Right. You know, I'd love to read this one quote that that just really this emphasizes that exactly what you're saying. Would that be okay? Sure. Uh, This is from Karen McCose, who was, again, my first teacher of experiential anatomy at Middlebury College, um, which relates to this process you're talking about. The point of doing these exercises is to create a way of moving and being that opens perception. So habitual ways of operating are discovered and replaced with awareness. It's in this place of awareness that innovation can be born and inquiry into what it means to be alive in a human body gets interesting. (laughs) Yeah, indeed, (laughs) indeed. Yes, and those repetitive patterns that she talks about you know, this is how all of us, each of us holds our bodies. And um, if you've done any kind of relaxation, oftentimes it'll happen in a yoga class where people, uh, the instructor will call out, no, relax any tension in your shoulders, relax any tension in your jaw, because we know that those are really common places that people will hold tension. Um, but this is a wonderful way of kind of bringing it off the mat and into your life where you can actually see well, wait a minute, how am I holding myself, you know, in this moment? And um, is that, you know, I, I don't know what the current data is about how many hours a day we spend on our on our technological devices, but it's a lot. And particularly for many people who work in offices, it's an awful lot. Um, so really very worthwhile, you know, to spend a, a you know, a, a, a minute playing around with this. And then as uh, the quote that you read just said, it gives you more more opportunities for for choice right exactly and then for improving your own health and well-being that then can last a lifetime right because you have this approach that you take into your life you know at one point you you had asked me as we talked earlier you know what's the difference between this and let's say sports or dance for students and i think this is really getting to the core of that is it isn't really about learning another skill which is important, but, you know, it's not really about skill building in a particular um, style. It's about this deeper awareness and 
repatterning and awakening of our body in new ways that gives us more inner resources. Yeah, no, indeed, indeed. So um, I know you've read that one quote from the student, but um, is there, well, actually, I realize we're getting close to the end. And <laughs> this time has really, really flown by. And I want to give you a chance to, uh, to respond um, to the last question we have about, oh, a minute and a half or so. So um, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners as we bring the show to a close? Oh, well, I think the first thing is don't be deceived by the title of my book, The Embodied Being. If you're an adult, you can still get the book and, you know, explore this material on your own. Take your time to find some of these practices and see how they might uh, impact you in your own life. And then if you're a parent or an educator, you know, I like to remind us that our own embodied presence really speaks louder than our words. So you can be a role model in this kind of way as you begin to explore this um, kind of material on your own. And I think the last thing is, you know, I've read quotes by my students. I might like to read one quote from my own book, if that's okay. Sure. <laughs> we take care of what we love. But to develop love, we need to make a personal connection. The way we treat ourselves is also intricately related to how we treat others and the environment around us. As we come to respect our bodies and understand our inherent interconnection with the elements of nature, we become more resourced in ourselves, more compassionate with others, and more respectful in caring for our planet. When given an opportunity to experience and reflect upon the body as an ecosystem, sensitive to inner emotions, thoughts, and physical processes, we develop a renewed sense of appreciation for our bodies. Giving our youth the opportunity to explore themselves and what it is to be a human being embodied and living sustainably on this planet is essential to a 21st century education. This is the call of our times, to learn to care for ourselves, for each other, and for the planet. Such a generation of embodied teens and embodied adults, I might add, will be best equipped to develop to their fullest potential, empowered to live healthy and meaningful lives. And with that, this is the close of the show. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and co-host of the show, and we've been discussing what the body can teach us with Susan Bauer the author of the book we've been discussing today, The Embodied Teen, a somatic curriculum of teaching body-mind awareness, kinesthetic intelligence, and social and emotional skills. You can find out more about Susan Bauer, her books and teaching schedule at her website, susanbauer.com. Again, Bauer is B-A-U-E-R.com. Thank you so much, Susan, for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you, Laurel. It's been wonderful to speak with you. Thank you for having me. Join us next time when I'll be talking with Yvonne Talley, the author of the book, Breaking Up with Busy. We'll be discussing tools and techniques to manage our busy lives in a more balanced way. Yogacharya O'Brien will be offering a retreat at the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health in Stockbridge, Massachusetts from August 11th to 14th, titled Live Your Abundant Life Now. You can also find out more about her uh, presentations this summer and fall in Raleigh, North Carolina, in Italy, and in Germany. And you can find those on Yogacharya's speaking schedule, which is on her author website, ellengraceobrien.com.
The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. CSE welcomes people from all backgrounds who are seeking self and God realization. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast at iTunes or Stitcher. And thank you to the Yoga Hour team, regular host, founder, and director of the show, Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producer, Ann Hayes, CSE's global media outreach manager, Holly Gray, Jeff Comfort, and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at unity.fm. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. 